you have your Bibles, why don't we go together to Luke 15 this morning. We'll continue in our study there through Luke's Gospel where we left off. And if you need a Bible, there's some guys walking up the aisle. They'll be glad to let you have one to follow along in God's Word with us this morning as we study. Luke 15, verse 1, right where we left off. And we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse 10. And if you read ahead in Luke 15, you'll take notice we have a couple of uh, parables that Jesus gives to us here. The parable of the lost sheep, and then of the lost coin, and then of course the parable of sort of the prodigal son as we know it. Uh, We'll look at probably together next time. Uh, But just really a great chapter to reveal to us the heart of God for the lost world. And sometimes I think we we really forget that we do serve a missionary God and that our God is desperately in love with and concerned uh, about the lost world. You know, it was Jesus himself, remember, who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And to realize that the love of God was so incredible for this world of which we all are a part of and were a part of even before maybe we committed our lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives to realize that God gave his absolute best for us in his son Jesus. And these are really just some great uh, verses to convey that major truth to us. So if you have your Bible turned to Luke 15, we're going to look at verse 1 through 10. And shall we stand together out of respect for the word of God as I read our text for Bible study. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1 tells us, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Father, we ask for your help now as we continue to worship, as we open up the Word of God together. We pray that this time would be just as much a part of what we consider worship as everything else we've done thus far. That, Lord, now we can worship you by giving our attention to the Word of God, believing that it is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and alive and powerfully speaks to each and every one of our hearts because you created us and you know us and you know exactly how to speak into our hearts personally. So Lord, you know what we need. Prepare us. Help us to just be attentive in our hearts and minds. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak personally and directly to each and every one of our lives. Teach us, 
correct us, Lord, instruct us, challenge us, and most of all, let us hear what you would say to each and every one of us. Give us that ear to hear, and bless your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, if you're a note taker, whether they're on the back of your bulletin or maybe you write down on a notepad, uh, one of the things as we begin to look at this text together that I would tell you potentially might be a good uh, maybe title or, or just a good opening statement that we see the heart of God really displayed in these verses in front of us is this very simple sentence that Jesus' agenda among the world is the conversion of souls. Let me say that again. Jesus' agenda among the world is the conversion of souls. I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus' agenda among the church is the equipping of the saints for works of ministry. But Jesus' agenda among the world at large is the conversion of souls, is seeing men and women Boys and girls turn their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ in repentance from their sin and personal faith in him as the savior of their life and the Lord of their entire life. In fact, we see Jesus very clearly saying things that convey this truth very directly. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus there will say personally, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's Jesus' statement about himself and his own personal mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We saw back in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus there said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, telling us the reason he came. And here in our passage, Jesus once again, I think, is portraying both by his actions as well as his words in the parables and teachings he gives this very important truth about the reason why he came for the conversion of souls. Look with me again back in verse 1. Our story opens up by telling us, then it says, all the tax collectors and the sinners, it says, drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders in that day, we've talked about them, Notice, they complained when they saw all the tax collectors and sinners drawing around Jesus and listening to his words. They complained saying, this man receives sinners and worse, he eats with them. So our scene opens up with Jesus, God in the flesh, God living out his life on this earth in human flesh like you and I to display to us what God is really like. And we always need to remember that. We worship Jesus as God. We follow Jesus as man. He was fully God and fully man. And Jesus came to this earth, yes, to die on the cross for our sins and make access for us to have eternal life and our sins forgiven. But one of the reasons Jesus also came to this earth is to truly show us what God is like. God walked among us in human form for 33 plus years, it would seem, to reveal to us what God really is like. Because we have lots of wrong ideas and preconceived notions in our mind what God must really be like. And so Jesus came and lived among us and the Gospels are recorded for us to show us, no, 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 this is what God is really like. This is really what God is like and his character and his nature and what his attributes are really like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So if you ever want to know what God is like, the best way to know is to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Don't ask someone else. Look for yourself at the person of Jesus Christ because he is the manifestation of who God really is. And our scene opens here with Jesus doing what? He's interacting spiritually with lost souls. It tells us specifically with groups of sinners. And as Jesus is interacting with lost souls, we also see that that is irritating who? Those who are religious and those who are self-righteous. And it's irritating and bothersome to him. Interesting that the Holy Spirit in verse 1 notice groups together tax collectors with just the general term sinners here in this dinner gathering. Now the word sinners could just very universally refer to really anyone who is not living in harmony with the will of God. The word sin in the Greek literally is harmatia. It means to just miss the mark as if there were a bullseye in the back of the room and I were trying to hit the bullseye on that mark and, and ultimately I'm going to miss the mark. I could be the greatest marksman in the world. Eventually I'm going to miss the mark and that, that's where the idea of sinner came from in the ancient language when they would shoot arrows through a hoop when someone would miss, they would shout out sin. And therefore, if you miss the mark, you then were a sinner. And guess what? That meant that ultimately everybody became a sinner whether they wanted to or not. You could be an excellent marksman, maybe you're a hunter, and, and you might hit the point nine times out of ten, but eventually you're going to miss. Even if you try really hard, you're still going to miss. And it's a good indication of what being a sinner means. That no matter how hard you try even to do right or to be perfect... Everybody still misses and messes up and fails once in a while. God's standard is perfection. He's a holy and a righteous God. And a sinner really is anyone who's missed the mark and who's living outside of the harmony of the will of God. And, and therefore they're living in an unholy way. They're living in ungodly practices and, and an unrighteous lifestyle. And of course referring to someone, we're all sinners, the Bible teaches, but in this sense referring to someone who is still not in relationship with Jesus Christ. They haven't come to God for the forgiveness of their sins. They haven't let Jesus convert their soul that they would go from being a sinner in the sight of a holy God to a saint positionally, that is someone who's forgiven and now righteous and prepared to go to heaven. A saint is still a sinner by nature and, and by, in a sense by practice, but when we come to Jesus, he converts our soul and he says, you know what, you were in this category, but now you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you're in the category of being a saint. So a sinner is anyone who's out of step with God and his will still at that point. A tax collector really just becomes then a specific example, if we could say, a very intense portrayal of a model sinner, if we want to call it such a thing. Tax collectors, if you remember were hated and despised by their fellow Jewish brethren in the nation of Israel. And the reason why, because of what things they did. They were known to be men who were driven by selfish gain and by personal greed. What a tax collector was, was someone they would bid for the opportunity to work at the tax office with the Roman government, and the Romans oppressed the nation of Israel. And as they oppressed Israel, they levied heavy taxes upon the Jews. And therefore, for a Jew to become a tax collector and to work for the Roman government, they were viewed as a turncoat by their fellow Jewish citizens because they were working for the Roman government who was oppressing the nation at that time. And the way it worked is a tax collector would sit at their booth and they would collect high taxes from their fellow Jewish brethren. And they knew what the set quota was that they had to collect. 
Their fellow Jews didn't know that, but they had a set amount that they had to collect and turn into the Roman government. Anything they could extort and manipulate beyond that quota, which they knew and the citizens did not, was then their income and their salary. So you can see how this would lend itself very well to greed, to selfishness, to individuals who, listen, if they knew how to work the system well, and they were savvy, and they knew how to play the game in their business context, they could very easily, through manipulation and abusing their authority, extort lucrative amounts above and beyond what they were supposed to from the people who were coming to pay their taxes by saying this is what you must pay and they turned in what their quota was and the rest went right into their pockets. So it lent itself to a very lucrative lifestyle for a tax collector because they could gather additional money and greedily enrich themselves and live quite exuriously. And the people knew this. And so they despised tax collectors, not only because they worked for them, but they despised them because basically by stepping over the backs of other people, they could enrich themselves and be greedy for gain and basically live luxuriously while they were being, in essence, selfish cheats and abusing their authority and their position to take advantage of everyone else that was around them. So they were hated by fellow Jews because of what they did. Now, with that understanding of what tax collectors were really like. They were known to be liars and cheats and greedy for gain. It's with that understanding, verse 1 is very interesting to see that it says all the tax collectors and the sinners, it says, drew near to Jesus to hear him. Now, listen to me. Though Jesus did not enjoy the lifestyle of the tax collectors and sinful people living in ungodly ways and still in immoral practices, prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards, though he didn't endorse what they did and he didn't like their lifestyle and their practices, Jesus still received them in the condition that they were and he loved them and accepted them as an individual still despite his disagreement, no doubt, with what they were doing. He accepted them right up front with their flaws, with their rough edges, no doubt with their foul mouths and their inappropriate conduct. And, and, and no doubt he didn't agree in any way with what they were doing. But he still loved them and he embraced them through fellowship and he let them be who they were because he realized they don't know God. They're just acting the way they know how. <laughs> they don't know God. They don't know any different. And Jesus would lovingly embrace them. Why? Because he wanted to reach them. Because he wanted to reach them to, to win the opportunity and the right through love and relationship to have an opportunity to speak into their life what would be helpful to them in regards to God. He embraced them in their current condition because he desired the opportunity to speak to them about God's plan for their life that they were missing. And that they were many times unconscious of and therefore they were living the only way that they knew how. He wanted to lead them to a decision of personal repentance or change. And the question should come to us this morning as we see Jesus doing that is, are we, as Christians, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, the Bible says that Christ is in you. The risen Christ by his spirit lives inside of us as Christians. That's what the Bible teaches. Are we as Christians yielding to the spirit of the risen Christ who is alive and living in us, Christ in you, are we yielding to his spirit to do the same thing this morning? What's our attitude towards unsaved tax collectors and drunkards and sinners and so forth that are around us in our school system or among our coworkers or in our neighborhoods or in our families? What is our, our attitude? Do we desire to do the same? To, hey, you know what, I don't agree, 
but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love this person and accept them where they're at and not just be repulsed by them and run away from them. I'm going to realize that that's where they're at. They don't know any different, but I want to love them where they're at. Let them know I don't agree with the way you're living, but I love you nonetheless. We hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And Jesus demonstrated that. Interesting that it shows us here the most wicked people, and you could say the, if you want to call it, the most hardcore sinners in that day in Israel, what do we find? It says they found themselves somehow attracted to Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to Jesus to hear him. So the most hardcore sinners in that day, if you want to say, hey, that, that guy's he's a... He's a notorious sinner, a chief sinner. Interesting, these kind of people, look at verse 1, they were attracted to Jesus. There was something about the way Jesus lived among them, cared for them, spoke to them. They were actually drawn to spend time with him. You'd think it'd be the opposite. But they actually desired to hear what Jesus would say. They wanted to be in the presence of our Lord. They found it enjoyable to interact with him, to share time with him. Now, no doubt... You look at Jesus, he always spoke the truth. He never compromised. No doubt, I'm sure there were times Jesus said things that kind of cut him to the heart a little bit, that made them feel a little challenged and uncomfortable because Jesus always spoke the truth. But yet, nonetheless, something about the presence of Jesus and the way that he lived among them and interacted with them and spoke to them, something about Jesus still prompted them to have this curiosity and interest to want to keep spending time with him. And to keep hearing what Jesus would want to say to them. They kept being drawn. It says right here, they drew near to Jesus. They, they kept wanting to hear what he had to say. Ouch, that hurt. Would you tell me something else? You know, <laughs> they just kept coming back. And there was something about, and question, do we experience that with people? Is there something about us as a Christian that still makes us attractive whereby people want to taste and see that the Lord is good? Again, the idea we're the salt of the earth. Salt creates thirst. Salt creates flavor on food. Are we salty Christians? Are we like Jesus, those who for some reason people are drawn to us? Or do people just really get bothered and irritated by us? Jesus, it says, people drew near to hear him. And it's the established religious figures we see in verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, it says, who we've seen before, these are the ones who bore religious titles they publicly, outwardly lived righteous lifestyles by the things that they did and their standards. We find they're doing what in verse 2? They're complaining. They're complaining about Jesus' involvement and interaction with ungodly people. And they show no interest, unlike the tax collectors and sinners, they show no interest in spending time with the Lord or hearing what he has to say. Instead, what are they doing? They're standing at a distance and they're criticizing what the Lord is doing and they're judging and complaining about what he's saying and who he's interacting with. A great way to examine our own hearts this morning, which attitude does our heart represent this morning? Are we people who are inclined to draw near to Jesus and really want to hear what Jesus has to say? Are we people who want to be involved in what the Lord is doing and draw near to Jesus and hear what he would say? Or... Is our heart maybe still in a different way where instead we kind of want to pretend to be spiritual, but we really want to just still kind of stand at a distance and stay disconnected and instead just stay disconnected, stand at a distance. We don't really have any interest in the Lord, but we like to stand at a distance and criticize what the Lord's doing and potentially what's going on around us. It seems to me that Jesus was a little more bothered by the latter heart condition 
with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It says that they were there doing what? Complaining, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now again, remember in that culture, to eat with someone was an extremely intimate experience. Very different than the way we perceive it today in our modern Western culture or here in the United States. In that day, hospitality was highly esteemed. Much of their entertainment revolved around having meals and banquets and people over for dinners together. So this was, this was a, a high level of importance in their minds. And therefore, to share a meal with somebody, in essence, was like sharing unity or oneness. For example, as people would share a meal, the same bread that you were eating, I was eating. The same meat you were eating, I was eating. And in their perspective, the way they viewed that was the same bread that's nourishing you is also nourishing me. And therefore, the same bread that's becoming a part of you is also becoming a part of me. And therefore, we're becoming a part of one another because the same thing is being shared by both of us. So to eat with someone signified to become joined or unified with them. So it's for this reason, that's why, the Pharisees and the scribes, these hypocritical religious leaders, they would not even ever contemplate eating with an ungodly person or someone who they deemed sinful because they didn't, in their perspective, want to be contaminated by this ungodly person. They didn't want to be defiled by interacting with someone, so therefore we notice they felt to remain separate from them it kept them more holy and righteous because they didn't defile themselves with ungodly fellowship. That's why you see in verse 2 that they are so bothered saying this man eats with, with, with sinners and, 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 and he receives them. See, in their mind, it was bad enough to receive somebody like that into friendship or fellowship. But to eat with them, I mean, that was crossing all lines. Because now you're actually interacting with them on a personal level. And in their perspective, whoa, that's just crossing all lines there. And this really was bothersome to them. Now, the mindset obviously is wrong, and that's why Jesus addresses their error with the two parables we're looking at together this morning. But it is a good, sobering challenge for all of our hearts that we be careful, especially as Christians, that we never begin to get this separatist mindset or this isolationist kind of attitude. Is that a real word, isolationist? I don't know. You, you get the concept. That we don't begin to have this idea that our sole job on this earth is just to keep ourselves from being contaminated by the world. Whereby we want to have our little holy huddle, us four, no more, and, and let's just keep it clean and not get it defiled. And, and by all means, don't interact with anybody that could defile or contaminate. Listen, I'm not saying that we should be foolish and have only fellowship with people who are non-Christian and carnal and end up letting them influence us. The key is, is that we are seeking to influence them, not letting them influence us. But how are we ever going to influence the world if we don't interact with the world? How are you ever going to lead somebody to Jesus Christ if you don't have one non-Christian friend? If the only people are, is your holy huddle and that's all your friends and who you interact, how are you ever going to lead somebody to Jesus Potentially, the only way some people think they can do that is every once in a while, as we do as Christians, nothing wrong with it, we'll have an outreach or a campaign or this or that, and we'll preach the gospel, and we hope some unsaved people come to an event. Well, I'll tell you, a lot of times, people don't, many times, want to come to things like that, or they're standoffish, and if there's no relationship, where do you have the opportunity to say, hey, I respect you enough to hear what you might want to say about God in my life? The relationship is so key. 
And we need to be careful that we never allow ourselves to kind of be getting irritated or avoidant with sinful and worldly people. Again, I'm not saying that you let people in. You've got to be careful. You need to be strong in the Lord and make sure you're not being influenced if you're a student. I'm not saying that you should run with a bunch of unsaved kids and that's your only friends and you never get spiritually encouraged. If it's beginning to make you backslide, then you need to reevaluate. But by the same token... If you're a Christian in that school, potentially, well, maybe there is this one who everybody else looks down upon. or Maybe that's somebody that's unsaved. God wants you to befriend in a missionary attitude to lead them to Christ. If you're a coach, maybe God wants to use you to interact and be a different coach than everybody else. If you're a teacher, if you're whatever, in your job place, maybe God wants you to stand out and be different than everyone else and befriend someone who doesn't know the Lord and love them where they're at, hoping and praying God will give you a chance to share Jesus with them, rather than just be irritated and bothered. Oh, man, they just drive me nuts. They're so ungodly. I wonder why. They don't know God. Guess who was like that once? I was. I was. I was glad somebody loved me in that condition, though. Because ultimately that was through that friendship that ultimately I heard about Jesus. And their wrong attitude contributes to a great teaching lesson here because chapter 15 gives us some parables about God's heart for the lost. And we see Jesus illustrating here motivation towards seeking that which is lost because of the value it, it, it possesses to the owner. He Whatever it takes, the shepherd looking for the sheep, the woman looking for the coin, because of the value of that one lost thing, whatever it took, until it was found, motivation was given to pursue. And of course, this pictures, these stories picture the concern of the Lord for us because of the great value we have as an eternal soul and how Jesus seeks us in our lost condition until he recovers us for himself. Again, Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So we'll see in verse 3 to 10 here these two parables, one of the lost sheep, the other of the lost coin. Interesting to notice the difference. The lost sheep is lost because of its own ignorance. It made wrong decisions and poor choices and it led to it being lost. The lost coin, an inanimate object, is lost because of the carelessness of another. And the mishandling of that coin caused that to be lost and therefore both lost for different reasons, but the bottom line is they're both lost. And they both need to be found and to be converted and restored back to where they were supposed to be. Look at verse 3. Jesus begins by speaking a parable in response to the Pharisees' attitude. He says, speaking a parable, What man of you, verse 4, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Again, Jesus speaking in a way people could relate to and understand, not in some lofty, philosophical, esoteric language. He, he spoke about what people understood in that day. He met them right where they're at. People understood sheep and shepherding, and he pictures now the realities of a relationship between sheep and a shepherd to portray God's heart and relationship towards us as people. First of all, notice sheep here, as they do, they get lost naturally. It is the natural bent by nature. Sheep are known for what? Not just to be white and fluffy, to be dumb. That's what sheep are known for. They make bad decisions. Okay? That's what sheep are known for. 
They are known by nature as creatures who are very foolish. If you study sheep, I've done some studying before, it is very, very interesting to see some of the things that they will do. They make foolish decisions which then jeopardize their own welfare. And because of that, their internal makeup, sheep are prone to wander off. It's common for them. It's very regular for sheep to get lost because typically they're inclined to follow after something. They see a little you know, sprig of, of you know, a plant over here and they'll oh, that's something to eat. So they'll wander off into a, a, a craggy you know, rock crevice or whatever and then not know how to find their way back out and turn around. And they're just known to be inclined to follow after things and they result, they end up lost and worse, they don't have the ability or the know-how to then find their way back. They get lost very easily and they're too dumb to figure how to get themselves back to where they're supposed to be. And they remain in that lost condition which jeopardizes their downfall and ultimately leads to their death. Secondly, Jesus portrays as well the reality that shepherds typically seek out lost sheep until they find them. That's what he's portraying here in verse 4 for us. How true shepherds care deeply about their sheep and they put a great value on their sheep. In fact, true shepherds know their sheep individually. They, they give them names. They know them by name. True shepherds, because they love their sheep, they know their, their sheep's temperament. They get to know their personality and their quirks and even how to relate to different sheep in different ways because they kind of know their temperaments. And therefore, in wisdom, they begin to understand how to relate differently. But one universal thing that a shepherd knows about every sheep is, again, their propensity to get lost. Because they all do it. It's the one universal trait that they all share. It's a common practice for shepherds to have to go and look for lost sheep regularly. It was commonplace. And Jesus pictures here the great motivation of the shepherd. Notice when he realizes one sheep is lost, it says that he makes arrangements there, verse 4, for the other 99 to be cared for, and then he goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. Notice, the shepherd's heart is not, well, by God, I mean, I got 99 out of 100. That's pretty good odds. That's like pretty good business statistics there. 99%, that's not bad. This shepherd, no, that's not his heart. He loves and values each sheep so much individually, he cannot rest because there's one still in his radar that's lost. And because of that, he makes arrangements for the 99 that aren't lost, and he begins to diligently pursue and go after the one that's lost, and he will do whatever it takes necessary to find that sheep and to restore it back to him. Again, remember the sheep is lost, it's abandoned, it's helpless. It can do nothing to help itself. It can do nothing to restore itself. It has no idea how to save itself. The shepherd is the one who goes after it. And I love how the language reads. It says that he goes after it, seeking it until he finds it. I like that. Until he finds it. He will do whatever it takes until that lost sheep is no longer lost. Until. He keeps looking and keeps looking. And of course, this story portrays our relation to God spiritually because the Bible repeatedly pictures us as human beings as sheep and the Bible often portrays God as a shepherd. Reason why is because we are all just like sheep. We are prone to wander and we all end up spiritually lost. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 says, Before we were saved, it says, We were all like sheep going astray. 
God equates us to sheep. That's what we're like. And the reason, again, for that, our nature is given to error automatically because we are born, the Bible teaches, with a sinful nature. Romans 3 says that we are all born under sin. And therefore, because of that, there's none righteous, no, not one. It says none who understands, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. There's none who does good, no, not one. And the Bible goes on to say there's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. One universal thing we all share, just like sheep universally shared, is we're all inclined to do what's wrong because we are born with a sinful nature. We don't, we don't become sinners we are born sinners and we demonstrate that as we begin to live out our lives. We're born with a natural magnetic inclination to do what is wrong. If you've raised children, you see that. The Bible teaches that we're born in a fallen condition and as a result, we automatically all, all automatically make poor decisions morally and spiritually. We head down paths that we shouldn't. We manifest our sinfulness as we end up following after and pursuing things in this life to our own hurt and to our own harm. And as long as sheep, as long as we live apart from following the Lord Jesus as our shepherd, guess what's going to happen? We're going to get entangled in things that we shouldn't. We're going to find ourselves stuck in places where we should not be as long as we don't follow Jesus as our shepherd because we're sheep. Sorry. We may think, oh, I'm smarter. No, you're not. You're stuck in things, you just don't want to admit them. You're snagged and entrapped in things that you wish you weren't, and the whole reason is because Jesus just isn't your shepherd. It's the, it's the course and the reality of every one of us in the world apart from Jesus. We're all in that condition. By nature, every soul is in a lost condition. The word lost, when you look it up, means to have erred off the proper course and are unable to find our way. And that applies spiritually where we're at with God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Before we're saved, we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature are children of wrath. That's God's estimation of all of us in our natural condition and all of us before we came to Jesus Christ if you're honest, you would look back in hindsight and say, yep, that's exactly what I was doing. I was being driven by my fleshly desires, my carnal appetites, what I wanted, how I want, and I was driven by the ideas and the ideologies of how the world did things, and I was following the world system because that was what we lived in. And apart from following Jesus, we just kind of went along with the, with the crowd and did what everyone else does, just like sheep will follow each other off of a cliff. So since we're spiritually lost, we desperately need to be found or saved by Jesus. And even as we're sheep, Jesus is like the shepherd. John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Jesus entered this world on a search and rescue mission. He went so far to the point to where he even laid down his own life and died on the cross for our guilt, for our errors, for our mistakes, he took the responsibility upon himself for the punishment of all that, laying down his life for us. And Jesus, as a shepherd, guess what? He loves us all personally. And he even knows us very well individually. He knows my temperament. He knows my idiosyncrasies and my personality. And he knows how to relate to me personally, just like he knows how to relate to you personally. And Jesus, in his love for us, 
seeing us in our lost condition, guess what he does? He will pursue us and pursue us and pursue us and pursue us until, see what it says there, verse 4? He sought after that lost sheep. He went after it until he found it. And Jesus will pursue and pursue and pursue, and he knows exactly what it takes for you, and he'll pursue and pursue until, whatever it takes, wherever he's got to go and whatever he's got to do, he will continue like that shepherd determined to win that which is lost, and whatever it takes, he will pursue us. Again, think of our lives right here in this room. What did it take until, until he found you? Think of what the Lord did and how he pursued until and did whatever it took until you committed your life to Jesus Christ. And the Lord is doing the same all around us for those who still haven't surrendered to him. Look at verse 5. He, Jesus goes on, And when he then finds that sheep, he lays it on her shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together, verse 6, his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was law. So Jesus portrays here the response of the shepherd once he finds that lost sheep. And please take note, the shepherd's not angry. The shepherd is not upset. He's not harsh. There you are, you dumb sheep. You are, I, I always, he's not, you don't see that. He's not harsh. He's not angry. Why? Because the shepherd knows all that poor sheep had to endure during the time that it was lost. And what has to be embraced as the result of being outside of the fold of the shepherd. So instead, he very lovingly and tenderly takes it. He puts it on his shoulders. He showers it with love and encouragement. He doesn't chide it for being lost. He's not cruel and harsh and judgmental. Instead, he lovingly embraces it. He encourages it. And he begins to rejoice and celebrate its recovery. And then so much so, verse 6 says, he even calls together his friends. He's so excited. He calls together others. He says, hey, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep, which was lost. And it meant so much for that shepherd to be able to find that sheep. And then verse 7, Jesus makes now the direct application. Jesus says, I say to you that likewise, in comparison to that story, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just or righteous persons who had no need at that time of repentance. So Jesus here shows how the story portrays the heart and the agenda of our Lord in wanting to rescue lost souls or lost sheep. And it also shows to us how in heaven's realm they celebrate of the spiritual conversion of unsaved people. Notice a few things with me. First of all, notice from this analogy and illustration Jesus is using how Jesus portrays spiritual conversion as a sinner who repents. Please take note of this with me. Jesus portrays spiritual conversion of a soul as a sinner who repents. Repentance of sin is essential and an important component of a conversion experience. What does the word repent mean? The word repent simply means to make a U-turn. It means to turn around, to have a change of mind about the direction you're going because you realize it's wrong and to acknowledge this direction's wrong, and therefore to turn around and to head in the right direction. That's what repentance means, to realize you're heading the wrong way and to make a change of direction. And Jesus' agenda, Jesus' agenda in reaching lost souls is to get them to realize you're heading the wrong direction. 
Maybe you didn't realize it for all these years. Maybe you were ignorant. But you're heading the wrong direction. Apart from God's will and not in step with what God... And, and you're heading the wrong direction, living in a way that is sinful and contrary to God's plan. And Jesus wants the sinner to realize that they're heading in the wrong direction. They're not right with God and they need to make a U-turn in their life. And they need to turn around and walk towards God. And walk towards God's will and God's way so he alone can save them out of that condition. Remember, Jesus, when he began to preach, used these words. First word out of his mouth, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said that. Repent, turn around. Turn around away from sin and Satan and turn around to face and to follow the Lord in salvation and in forgiveness. I say that for this reason. In order for there to be Please hear me. In order for there to be not just spiritual profession, but spiritual conversion, there must be the repentance of sin in a person's life. There is a distinct difference between people who make spiritual professions and spiritual conversion. Now, are hopefully most spiritual professions also spiritual conversions? I hope so. I hope the rate is as high as possible. But I tell you this from personal experience and observation, people can make a spiritual profession and there's no spiritual conversion. They simply prayed a prayer. They simply responded to an emotional appeal or pressure. And they, they said a few words or they repeated a prayer after someone. But the reality was, though they said those words, nothing happened in here. Here's what basically happened. Somebody said, you're going the wrong direction. They said, yeah, I know, you're right. I agree I'm going the wrong direction. But then they never turn around and drive the other way. They just say with their words, I agree I'm going the wrong direction. But they don't act upon it. And see, Jesus demonstrates and reveals and portrays a spiritual conversion as a sinner who repents. And this is so important. A person, in order to be sincerely recognizing that they are a sinner before God so that they can respond to God to save them. A person must recognize that they are a sinner and admit that they're living a life that's sinful and wrong, that they're living a life that's not right before God, and they must choose to repent, which means to turn away from the sin and the wrong way they're living. Why? So they could turn around to the Savior who can deliver them out of their sin and can allow them by faith to begin to walk forward in a relationship with Jesus Christ, to decide to turn away from a sinful life that's very important. Jesus said, repent. Jesus says here, what does conversion look like? It's when a sinner repents. When someone who recognizes, I'm a sinner. I'm living the wrong way before God and I'm going to choose. I'm going to decide to stop going the wrong way and turn around and put my faith in Jesus and follow him so that he can take away the penalty of my sin and so that he can take away the power of of sin that is causing me to participate in the wrong way, in the wrong direction that I'm living in. And this is very important because we live in a day and age where in this great grand desire to want to just see people, you know, in a sense, you know, flood and this and that. And, and many times I, I'm afraid that sometimes we subvert the reality of truly telling someone what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I, I want to make sure that when somebody is, is coming to Jesus Christ that they understand. Because I don't want to know that I was part and participant to someone who I wanted to just get another gospel notch on my belt. That then I contributed to them hearing one day when they stand before their maker 
I never knew you. Lord, Lord. But I did this and I listened to teachings and, and, and he said, but I never knew you. I never knew you. Because you might have consented to the truth, but you never repented. You never truly left that and followed me. And we see in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where Peter would preach about Jesus being crucified and alive from the dead. And it says, when the people heard Jesus was dying for their sins and he was alive from the dead, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what shall we do? What do we do in regards to our sinfulness and the reality of who Jesus is? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter later said this in a message where he was sharing. He said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, I have to turn away from what my faith and following pursuit is to put my faith in Jesus Christ to receive his forgiveness. If I don't understand I need to repent, what do I need to be forgiven for? If I don't admit that I'm living the wrong way, then what do I need to follow Jesus as my Lord for? Because I need to realize I'm following something else. I'm the Lord of my life. He needs to be the Lord of my life. And it's faith that leads me to say, this is wrong, I'm turning away, and I need to turn around and be converted and have the Lord take over control. Well, Jesus also reveals that when that happens, as the King of Heaven, he says, all of heaven rejoices over that. There's celebration. He says, in heaven's atmosphere, he says, people begin to rejoice over one sinner who repents, which shows that what brings joy in heaven is not just people who are saved, faithfully following Jesus. I think that blesses God when we faithfully keep walking with Jesus. But what really blesses the heart and the atmosphere of heaven is not just when a saved person stays on track with Jesus, but when saved people live godly lives and love sinners around them and help lead people to Jesus and conversion. That's really what blesses the heart of God. It says there's great joy and excitement in heaven. And you know, if you've ever genuinely had the privilege to share the gospel and lead someone to Jesus Christ, that joy that's happening in heaven, there's a measure of that that God lets you experience in your heart and soul when you see somebody come into the kingdom that just blows you away. And it shows us what the agenda of the Lord here is among this world, is the king of heaven, because heaven rejoices when this victory is accomplished. Verse 80 says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, she doesn't light the lamp and sweep the house and search carefully for it, it says, until she finds it. Now again, this coin was probably one of the valuable coins that was part of their wedding headband. They would save coins and money from the dowry. They would weave them together into a headband to hold on their veil for their wedding. So this coin for this woman not only had value and monetary means, but it also was probably a very sentimental, important thing to her. It would kind of be like our wedding band, in a sense. She would lose one of these coins. And if you've ever lost or know someone who's lost their wedding bands, no shouting out, we had an incident not too long ago, you, you, you know what that's like. It's very important. It's not just value, but it's sentimental value. So this is very important. When this woman loses this coin, that's how she feels. And though it's, oh, it's just one coin. No, no. It's not just one coin. This means so much to me. And see, God never looks at a lot. It's just one life. It's just one soul. No, God values every soul. And in that day, houses had little light. So notice she has to light a lamp, it says. A modest home had dirt floors. So you see it says there that she has to sweep the house because the coin was probably under a thin layer of dust on the floor. So she's searching the whole house just for this one coin. 
She's radically committed to finding it. And in verse 9, just like the shepherd, when she found it, she calls her friend. She starts to rejoice. Rejoice with me. I found the peace that's lost. Verse 10, and likewise I say to you, again, Jesus repetitively says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In other words, Jesus emphasizes once again, by repetition, how the angels of God, he says, rejoice when a lost person is saved, when a sinner is found and comes to Jesus Christ. Again, why? Consider the angels as they observe all that's gone into the salvation process. Consider the angelic realm, the angels of God, and they realize as they observe what God the Father allowed to happen on this earth and still allows to happen among humanity. As people spit in the face of God, as people badmouth God, as people live in the way they live and rebel against, and, and the angels observe how God the Father patiently, lovingly allows this to go on and how God allowed what happened to his son to happen. And the angels scratch their head and watch this. The angels realize what extent Jesus went to coming to this earth, living as a man, being spit upon as God having people slap him and rip his beard out of his face and, and, and pierce him in the most degrading, humiliating way as he hung naked, dying publicly on a cross for people's sins. And the angels watch this. And they look at how the Holy Spirit goes throughout the earth and where he's willing to go to find people like you and I to save us. And the angels watching this, when they see someone finally come to Jesus Christ, knowing how important the salvation experience is, not only for us, but to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says when one sinner repents, there is joy and celebration in the presence of God among the angels that are there. Again, because Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Interesting. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I didn't come to this earth to call people who think they're righteous. People who are self-righteous. In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to this earth for people who think they're good. I came to this earth for people who know they're bad. For people who know that they're wicked at heart. For people who know that they're wrong. For people who understand that they're guilty before God. For people who can acknowledge, yeah, you know what? I'm a failure. And I've done some really rotten things. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I know I've done some rotten things. Thought, word, deed. I'm not righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come for people who think they're okay and, well, I'm good enough because I'm basing myself off of this person over here. I'm good enough in comparison to them. Well, it's in comparison to God's standard. Jesus said, I came for people who know they're bad, know they're evil, know they're ungodly, and know they deserve hell. Jesus said, that's who I came for because those people know they need to be saved. And those people have radical turnarounds. I love Peter himself. On one occasion, it says this strong man Peter who was a, a natural leader when he truly saw who he was before Jesus says that Peter fell on his knees before Jesus said depart from me Lord I am a sinful man and see it was that revelation of Peter to what he was really like that prepared Peter not only for his conversion to follow Jesus but it's what made Peter become very influential for Jesus because he realized who he really was before the Lord you know, many times you see in the Gospels where Jesus, with great authority, will call people and he says to them, follow me. And many times people, unexpected, 
to everyone else around him, they would be the ones to get up and they'd radically start following Jesus. They'd jump in with both feet and they'd blow everybody else's mind because they weren't the righteous people who thought they were good. They were the people who realized, you know what? Yeah, I am who I am. And if this guy's willing to forgive me and give me a chance and lead me into heaven's glory, I'll follow him. I don't care what I've got to leave behind. I'll follow him. And they would get up. You know, to me, let me say this. It is interesting, as you think of years earlier in Jesus' ministry, a similar occasion, the conversion of an influential man. His name was Levi, or Matthew, the gospel writer. And it says that he was himself a tax collector sitting at the tax office, and Jesus said to him, years prior to this occasion, follow me. And Matthew, as a wretched man, in his own eyes and the eyes of the society, Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus Christ. And I can't help but to wonder, as you see here in Luke 15, verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners are now drawing near to Jesus. I can't help but to wonder because Jesus reached out to that one man's soul, who was a very influential individual on top of that, that because of the fact that this guy getting saved that he not only followed Jesus himself, but he became a catalyst of great influence. Matthew, even member, published and recorded one of the gospel accounts that we have. I say that to say this this morning. Let us never, ever, ever underestimate the influence of the conversion of one soul. Because you have no idea the influence they may have upon the conversion of many souls. One tax collector gets saved. A few chapters later, we read all the tax collectors and sinners are now around Jesus. And maybe, maybe, it's because that one soul got saved, a soul of influence, and that soul began to influence many other people. Never underestimate the value of just one soul. It matters to God, and it can have a great impact on other people, maybe in ways that I can or you can't. After they get saved, they can influence their tax collectors all the sinners who are like them as well because they realize what happened. And this morning, listen, maybe you're that Matthew today. Maybe God wants to save you, not just to give you eternity and forgive your sins, but maybe. What if God has a bigger picture and a bigger plan for your life? Hey, that's just greater motivation to come to Jesus. Like Saul of Tarsus, God didn't just save him. God selected him and said, I'm saving you, yes, because your sins need to be forgiven and you need a new life, Saul, because you're in the wrong direction. But Saul, I'm going to use you in powerful ways because of who he was and God did it through his life. Shall we stand? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for how it speaks directly into all of our lives. And we pray this morning for ourselves that, Lord, what we've sown into our hearts, the seed of your word, that you would water by your spirit and that you would allow us to be responsive to it in each of our lives Father, for those of us who are Christians, would you give us a burden and a desire to want to see people get saved around us? I admit many times, Lord, my heart loses sense of your love and the importance of seeing souls be saved. Forgive me. Help me to continue to love those around me and to reach out to them that they might come to know your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray as well for those souls, those Matthews and those Sauls that you still want to save, that your spirit would do whatever it takes until, until, Lord, they respond to you. For we ask in Jesus' name.